Hello. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. Today we have on the podcast two guests that we've had on before for their wonderful deep dive investigative book called The Watchdogs Didn't Bark, The CIA, NSA, and the Crimes of the War on Terror. The authors behind that book, John Duffy and Ray Novoselsky, have a new project out called After the Uprising. It is an iHeartRadio produced 11-part investigative podcast series, but to call it a podcast series would be not doing it justice, I think. Because like Ray and John's previous work, such as the podcast Who is Rich Blee, you could almost call this more of an audio documentary rather than a podcast, because I think it really tends to suck you in and it's not produced like other podcasts that you may have heard before. After the uprising follows the story of how 24-year-old Donye Jones was found hanging from a tree in St. Louis County in 2008. And according to the synopsis for After the Uprising, it says that police declared it a suicide. But as Ferguson frontline activist mother Melissa grabbed headlines with her viral post alleging her son had in fact died by lynching. Who was right? Starting only six weeks after Donye died, journalists John Duffy and Ray Novoselsky spent two and a half years working with his mother, family members, close friends, and many in the activist community to follow the trail and find out exactly what happened to him. So without any further delay, let's just jump right into our interview with Ray and John, also featuring Abby. Wow, what a what a wild ride. I mean, I listened to about half of the episodes. I'm I, it's just amazing. I've never spent that long investigating something. I can't imagine just the emotions. I mean, just the the breadth and scope that you guys really treaded through to get so many threads um, unraveled here with the story. It was just it was a really mind blowing experience, and I'm excited to listen to the to the complete set. But you've put together a very very incredible and powerful presentation. And this was really a subject that I think a lot of people know very little about. I think that the headline maybe resonated with people when it first came out, but you know, largely it's been forgotten about. Um, and so it is really impactful to just dig into this again and see how how deep it really goes, right? Because it's so much bigger than than Donye's death. I mean, this is about an entire community that's experiencing this kind of policing and callous disregard from from the police forces, in essence. Um, so, you know, a lot of the clips you play, too, just really brings us back to the beginning of Black Lives Matter, that raw, intense energy of what it was like on the ground, especially for the activists in Ferguson. And it, before we get into the story here, I mean, let's talk about the amount of research that goes into finding the elements to a narrative like this, because this is like an audio documentary. This is not just any other podcast. The quality feels very visual. It feels like you're listening to a film and actually imagining and seeing these scenes play out. I mean, you guys first nailed this formula with who is Rich Blee. Robbie and I were clearly inspired by this with our Schrodinger's Super Patriot podcast. So I guess just talk about that. Talk about the intentions behind the methodology of making something like this, your inspirations for doing so, and just the amount of time and research it takes to really pull these clips to, to paint this picture for us. 
if it's filmic, I guess it's because we probably wanted, you know, ideally we would have made this as a documentary or a docu-series, but we were realizing that there are these stories that like, you'll go and you'll get access and you'll be surprised. Someone will say, yeah, I'll work with you. And you know what? There's a hearing next week or something that you want to start recording right away, as you know, Abby. And then with a documentary, you got to pull together the funding for, you know, development shoots and a team and this, that, and the other thing. And so as we've been listening to more and more podcasts, I think we realized like, this is a way to be quick, to be mobile, to stay with the story and, and you know, and uh, and maybe maybe do more because, uh, yeah, because you got to pay a lot, a lot fewer people. Um, and uh, but, but thank you for the, the kind words, by the way. You know, the, the fact that you and Robbie occasionally mention being inspired by our early work is probably one of the, you know, it's very rewarding to hear that because we love your work. Yeah, it was actually funny because. Uh, who who is Rich Blee was also supposed to be a movie. <laughs> um, it was supposed to be the <laughs> it was supposed to be the press for truth follow up, and we had you know we had this whole plan for going towards that footnote forty four thing, just diving into this one little piece of information in the nine uh, eleven commission report, and like how that led back to Alex Station of the CIA. Like we had this whole thing for a movie, and we actually had someone interested in in helping us do a little development financing and then the 2008 market crash happened and she was like sorry guys like i just lost all my money and we were like well bummer so we just kind of kept at it and then eventually one day ray was like we should turn that into a just make it a podcast because we'd done some shoots and we had you know a lot of you know obviously the audio from those shoots but then we'd also just kind of followed on with some phone calls we recorded that we thought maybe for the final film we would set to like cool still images or something so we had all this audio and he was like, let's make it a podcast. And I was like, what's a podcast? And like, and he's like, it's just, it's just like this. It, it'll just be all audio. And I was like, oh, okay. And like, I had no concept of what we were doing. And then obviously podcasts became this big thing. And like Ray said, it just, it's just the more mobile way to jump on a story, but you can still use the storytelling devices that you would use in a film to an extent um again thank you so much for the kind words i mean putting it together that is our intent is that to be like all right you're 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 watching a movie with your eyes closed it should feel like that totally i mean it's it's amazing that you guys did who would who is rich blee before this was kind of mainstreamed this type of narration and storytelling that became you know very popular with serial and what's funny with that is that like we so not having had a format for what like a investigative true crime podcast would like lay out like i actually looked to uh this american life script and was like well we like this american life they don't really do true crime but what if we sort of approach the rich belief format like that and so I think it's funny because obviously Serial spun off from This American Life and essentially did the same thing, like, I think three years later. Um, not that we nailed it, like, Serial really nailed it. Clearly Serial <laughs> nailed it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we were on the right um, track there. We missed, we just missed our, we missed yeah. our moment there at that, yeah. at that point. But. It just one of the things I immediately noticed that differentiates your work from other you know, podcasts stuff that I've heard is that the audio is always like a really key aspect to it. I mean, even compared to like the most, you know, professional stuff that's that people normally hear, like an NPR documentary, your your guy's audio is definitely like standout. So what, I mean, where did that come from? I know I, I heard some of what you were saying earlier to Abby about how this originally was maybe envisioned as a film and you use some of that, you know, audio from those recordings, but in general, I just noticed this is a sort of a theme that goes throughout 
all of your podcast work. So what, I mean, where does that come from? Like, is one of you guys in particular, like an audio guy or both of you? Like, no, I'm about know. to crack up laughing at how bad I think our audio is. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, I'm always just like, like I hear it and I'm always like, this audio is trash. Like, uh, no. Have you listened to other podcasts? Holy shit. <laughs> my god i mean we're probably always more critical of the things you've done well so many situations that we've recorded for this it were in busy spaces so mm-hmm. we would go to like melissa's house and her daughter would be there and her grandson would be there so there's like a kid playing with like a, an electronic toy and there's someone in the next room you know doing dishes you know or the very first meeting we had with her in person was at like a, a crummy motel by the airport in st louis and, you know, the the pipes and the wall are rattling. And so everything to me, I'm just like, oh, my gosh, like all the audio is jacked. But we do have an audio engineer in Detroit who's a good friend of mine. His name is Josh Condon. And he's taken this on uh, in a very cool way where he's, yeah, he, he's, he's going over it the best he can to clean up the garbage that I've given him to turn it into something listenable. Fun anecdote, though. Uh, one one of the the few notes we got from Matt McDonough now this early on about uh, changes that we should make to content were just that we should. There were a number of lines that were in there about apologizing for what you're about to hear. It was a noisy room, so sorry yeah, about whatever. Yeah, yeah, right. And then Matt was like, "None of it sounds bad, so just take all those out of there." You know, so we did. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I just, I just heard that actually. I think you left a couple of them in, and I was just like, you know what? It actually sounds really great. <laughs> like the neighbor or whatever, when you were knocking on the neighbors' homes, and you were just like, sorry for the, the low audio quality. And I was just like, dude, I, I mean, it's crazy to think of not to get too much off on a tangent, but a lot of big podcasts just sound plainly like shit. It's like people do not invest the time or energy to actually make the audio sound good. So like props to you guys. And I totally hear what you're saying. It's really, really hard to get those nat sounds and to get just interviews when you're in hectic spaces, but you guys pulled it off. Well, yeah, we're, we're glad you think so. Cause I'm, I'm super critical of audio and like it great, every little thing grates on my ears. So I'm glad you think so. <laughs> well, I think it adds to the, it adds to the, the, the story, the immersion of it. I mean, even if the, some of these things were not ideal, circumstances to record some of these interviews i I think that in the end it it just adds to yeah it it sucks you in so i think i mean regardless of the intent uh i think it really works for what you guys are trying to do in this in this podcast one of those podcast companies that we almost landed the deal with who i won't name um once they sort of heard the audio they they were used to this kind of very clean like interview style. And we had gone for more of a capture the conversation, kind of more uh, akin to like observational verite documentary, where it's okay that you're hearing the kids play in the background. In fact, we kind of like that. And it's okay that you don't speak in sentences where you refer to the subject by name at the top, because like we said the name, you know, in our response to you and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it has more of a casualness that makes people feel like a fly on the wall. Um, Absolutely. The fly on the wall thing, I think is really what sucked me into it yeah so i think i mean it's it's cool that you guys are doing something truly unique but let's get into the depths of uh the actual content of after the uprising can you talk about who donnie jones was and what was it about this case that made you want to do such a deep dive um considering that you know some of your previous work how i first got into you guys was you know covering much broader subjects having to do with like the federal government, you know, um, 
essentially incompetence of about 9-11, um, if you want to call it incompetence, the Who is Rich Believe podcast. And then jumping to this, it, it seems like a completely different uh, type of subject to tackle, but maybe in some ways it wasn't for you guys. So tell me a little bit about how the, how you got into this story in the first place. Um, well, Duffy and I were both pitching each other stories to work on after our, our book had been published in August of 2018. Watchdogs didn't bark. Y'all were kind enough to have us on at that time. Thank you again. And uh, yeah, we were looking for our follow-up subject. Thank you. And uh, we pitched each other ideas and neither of us liked the other's idea. And then Duffy found this one. And I think uh, we immediately recognized the potential here. And I think it didn't necessarily... You're right. It was a bit of a break from what had been a lot of exposés into the war on terror. But I think what connected it a little bit is that we're sort of uh, anti-authoritarian sort of guys. <laughs> and uh, we definitely don't like seeing, you know, potentially vulnerable populations being picked on by people with more power uh, simply because they can and because they can get away with it. I think we really enjoy kind of exposing that. And we saw the possibilities of that here and not to mention the fact that it was uh, although it had gone away for a while and kind of came back with George Floyd it's it's one of the most important topics in America of our time so why not try to go there yeah i think we wanted sort of like a a, a little story if you can call it that uh, like something that it's local right it's 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 home in a in a specific place it's not this big umbrella issue but like with the, you know, with like the Watchdogs book and stuff, you, and uh, who is Rich Blee, you have a, a character, Alfredo Bukowski, right? Like this really bad actor sitting in this position of power who seemingly gets more power and seemingly gets, uh, you know, it, neglected to be punished by anyone no matter what she does. And when we were actually pitching each other's stories, one of the things Ray was talking about wanting to dive into was, uh, you know, the kids in cages and the migrant issue. And he was like, I know if we go down into Border Patrol, we're going to find our, our Alfredo Bukowski in Border Patrol, you know. And then, and, we, and then talking about this, we're like, you know, so like if we dig into like St. Louis, you know, police, we'll find our Alfredo Bukowski there. We'll find our person who's just a piece of crap, who they just don't remove no matter what you know and uh, or they keep promoting and uh lo and behold <laughs> you find that person yeah there's this character that i'm sure we'll get into detective Anderer, the lead detective for st louis county and you know I, I recently belatedly met with someone uh who was um who's a source inside uh the police there locally who told me it's essentially the exact same thing we look at in watchdogs and that we looked at regarding this this red-haired cia agent which is this idea that if you expose wrongdoing within, you know, your agency, then you're going to be seen as a problem person. But if you get covered up for even once by a higher up, then you and the higher up are now bonded. You're in the club. You know, they're not going to flip on you the next time. You're basically good to go from there. And that's what the source seemed to think is being reflected in the story of Detective Anderer. But, yeah. You know, there was a civil rights group that actually sued the Ferguson Police Department because of their racist policing policies. I think it was back in 2013 that that story came out that said that, you know, Ferguson, which is a relatively small city population of around 21,000 people, yet there were 33,000 outstanding arrest warrants for unpaid traffic violations. I mean, it's pretty hard to wrap your mind around how that's even possible, but I guess paint a picture for us because you guys were there for such a long time um, the callous disregard from police uh, to 
help aid your investigation, of course, uh, you know, and part of that's why you were doing this, pursuing this because of their neglect. Um, But I guess just paint a picture for us about what Ferguson is like in terms of policing and racial inequity. Well, if you look at Ferguson specifically, I'll I'll split a little hair here so the audience can understand. There's St. Louis as a city. And then there's St. Louis County, which is not does not include St. Louis the city. And St. Louis County has upwards of 90 different municipalities in it, of which Ferguson is one. Uh, and then some of these municipalities have their own police forces and municipal courts, and some do not. And they get all their policing and court uh, work done through the county itself. So um, Ferguson does have a police force, obviously, and does did have its own uh, does have its own municipal court system. And then the Department of Justice went in and looked at what was going on there after the you know the Mike Brown situation and found what you're talking about, Abby, which was that uh, the way the the DOJ described it was the police basically serve effectively as a way to get revenue for the municipality. So they were giving people four, six, eight, 12 tickets at a stretch for every little thing in order to grind as many fines out of them as they could. And this, of course, put people into the system where, great, now I, now I have to also be at court. Oh, now I got to take off work. Oh, what, my, del- my day was delayed? Oh, now I got to go back another day. And it's like, oh, I missed a date because I couldn't get childcare. Great, that's another fine. You know, it was this whole grind. And the DOJ basically had to take that police department into a receivership uh, and is ba- basically saying, like, until you meet certain benchmarks, you can't even be an independent police force. Now, the fact that it's even allowed to exist in that capacity is pretty uh, disgusting. Now, you know, if you listen to our show, you're going to hear different individuals who live there who are obviously better at describing it than we are. Talk about what life is like in whether in Ferguson or in St. Louis County, uh, if you are a black person. So uh, Tef Poe, who is a rapper uh, from St. Louis, uh, who happens to be cousins with Melissa, uh, we spoke to him at length and he's just like, yeah, you know, if you're if you're a young black man, you do not drive through St. Louis County at night in a car with more than two people in it. He's like, if we're out, we're hanging out. You're at my place. Oh, it's after midnight. Too bad. You're sleeping here on my floor. I'll drive you back in the morning. Like we know we're getting pulled over. And, you know, he describes uh, I, th- I believe it was his brother getting, or was it his brother who got, I can't remember who he described, but somebody getting, it his, was his brother. Yeah. His brother getting on sh- Christmas Eve or whatever. Correct. Getting shot on Christmas Eve. And like the police are standing over him, dropping end bombs uh, and saying, and instead of like moving towards saving his life real quickly, like who shot you, you know, you know who shot you. And again, like using uh, racial epithets over him and stuff. So of course the police, you know, they're, they're, media face tries to be really shiny and like no it's not like that and sure we have problems but we're we're working past that and hey the people actually really appreciate us a lot more than you might think but then you can just get story after story of people being you know profiled abused uh you know wrongfully arrested held in jail for much longer periods of time than they need to be etc yeah i mean i it's just so, it was such an interesting location. I don't know how many you know, like we had paid some attention to what was going on out out in St. Louis, but of course, once we started on this track, we're we're paying attention to everything, and you know, it's it's just amazing people uh, dying or abused while being held in you know in, in jail. How often that one happened? Like yeah. stories of activists. There was that Luther Hall thing where he's a black undercover officer who's pretending to be a protester working for. St. Louis City, and then gets uh, beaten by other 
uh, other police because they don't realize he's an undercover. The number of like, kind of like, can you believe this stories that relate to St. Louis County PD? It's incredible. And so it's such a fertile location. This is why, like, you know, there have been a lot of thoughts about we we came up with the title after the uprising. uh, John did. And we liked it because it seemed like it could apply to other mystery stories around other activists in other areas. But we're we're kind of debating internally right now whether we want to do that or we want to stay kind of in St. Louis and kind of keep those feet to the fire because we've established such an interesting world out there, you know, that we can build on. I mean, it honestly sounds like occupied Palestine. It does seem like a like a military occupation to be black in America in certain municipalities like the one that you guys have described. Visceral just tension, you know, I mean, being retold through the likes of Tef Poe and others who just talk about what it is like. Uh, it's something that's really unfathomable. Um, and let's just talk about the first episode. I mean, it's a very intense start. You know, I'll just say that. I mean, the 9-11 tapes reliving what Donye's mother, Melissa McKinnis, saw and felt the day that she found her son's body hanging from a tree. You started working with this family and his friends only six weeks after he died. I can't even imagine the overwhelming grief and suffering of losing your son, losing your brother. I mean, just talk about your experience getting close to them during this tragedy and, you know, going as two white men who were journalists and just saying, look, we're we're trying to do this story justice. I mean, that that is not an easy thing to do. Yeah. And I mean, we got to give luckily the, the news media and in particular, the local news media can always be counted on to show up take interest in an important subject and then just completely disappear and forget about it. As you both know, that leaves a a big opening for people who stick around the following month and the month after that. And that's how you establish trust. There's no special trick to it. You tell them we're not going away. We're with you for the long haul. And then you, and then they see that that's true. And, and they, and then also you develop a body of knowledge, obviously, the longer you stay with the story uh, and that, that you then build on, um, so, you know, when, when someone mentions a name that maybe another reporter who had just come in would hear and not register, you go, oh, wait, wait, that's the same person that connects with this. And then, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was weird because, you know, in situations like this, you, if you're trying to tell the story, you do kind of want to be the first one on the ground so you can start building that trust. You don't want to be like late to the game, come in six months later and find out oh, someone's already on that project you really wanted to sink your teeth into. At the same time, like you said, you're walking into a situation where these people are hurting and hurting hard, you know, and it's such a del. It, it, I, I will say I am clumsy. Like I am not like the best, like, God, like I remember that like first meeting uh, at the hotel where like even just simple things like I'm waiting in the lobby. Melissa comes in with her sister. I didn't even know if they'd show up because like, they would never quite pin down a time, you know, and she's not knowing who to trust at all. Like she's skeptical of everybody. Um, you know, I could be some guy out to get her or whatever in some capacity. And like, I had just watched videos of her online. So I knew what she looked like. And when she came in and I just kind of stood up friendly, like, Hey, like it just freaked her out that like, I knew who she was before she, she knew who I was, right? She's like, oh, what? Like this guy knows what I look like and all that. And I was, it's like, no, no, I've just, I've, I've seen the videos, you know, of you. And, and her sister was real cool and chill and, and was like really trying to 
uh, bridge that gap. But you know, I'm you're, you're you're balancing someone's fear and their their real inability to trust. And you know, this isn't surprising, but we get up to the room, we're sitting down, we're talking. You know, I'm I'm trying to like offer you know water and refreshments, and uh, Melissa has this bag on her lap that she keeps sort of adjusting and holding and in my head i'm like she's got a gun on her lap like and you know it wasn't it wasn't until you know two years later she she was like yeah yeah i had a gun on my lap and we all had a good laugh about it and you know she's like yeah it's good we can talk about this now but she's like at that time she was like on a hair trigger not trusting people but we're also dealing with a person who is so emotionally heart you know just so heartbroken that there are days at a, t- at a stretch where she doesn't want to get out of bed, you know, especially that first year. And like, so you're trying to work with a person and develop leads and stuff. And then it's like, uh, like, yeah, yeah, she's not going to, like she said she was going to come. She's not going to come. But I think like Ray said, our persistence uh, over time showed that we could be trusted. And also when we start bringing back information, then it shows it's like, all right, it's worth working with us. And one of those pieces of information was, finding out that there was more DNA on the bedsheet he was hanged with than just his own, which nobody had told her or her family. And the pathologist happened to just tell that to Ray over the phone. And we're just like, whoa, hold up. Like, and so we're the ones who bring that information back to the family. That was done by the crime lab. And the crime lab is under the police, not even under the medical examiner's office. So the pathologist is just hearing it through chit chat and the detective who ostensibly should have told the family, hey, we found this, didn't feel that was necessary. So it's, it's us going back saying, hey, you know, there was actually extra DNA in the sheet. We don't know what it means yet, but it's there. And I think they hear, they go, okay, these guys are finding good stuff. We can, you know, it's good to keep them around. Big moment of trust, too, uh, that when I really realized that we had established trust with her is when she gave us Danye's uh, Android phone. We had a lead as to how to kind of uh, hack it, and the cops had made a very minimal effort of ever trying to get into it. And we, of course, had tried to, as they, in the audience will hear in, in episodes, uh, worked with the ex-girlfriend to try to track down the passcodes. And, but, yeah, ultimately, she, she handed over her son's cell phone and... And we were able to get in, which opened up a whole nother world that, you know, no one had gotten to regarding like Danye's last year, really. Um, but it was also that was a moment, too, where I realized um, that, yeah, not only did she tr- trust us, but that we, we had a huge responsibility then, <laughs> like holding that cell phone um, to do right by her. Tell us a little bit about Danye Jones, who he was, what kind of activism that he did. and basically what also sort of made people believe that he had been murdered and it wasn't a suicide. I know I'm throwing several things at you, but because this is sort of the core uh, of, of how your documentary began. So I guess tell me a little bit about just him as a person and also, yeah, like why, why were so many people and immediately suspicious, you know, besides his mother um, that this maybe was not a suicide. Uh, Danya was 24 when he passed away, uh, and by all accounts, he's sort of, I almost want to call him an all-American guy, you know, he's, you know, he grows up outside, you know, outside a major metropolitan area, you know, goes to school, graduates, is trying to figure out what to do with his life, you know, has a couple, you know, just Joe jobs, you know, making money, 
has girlfriends, goes, uh, you know, ha- has his hobbies, likes music, um, and at some point uh, decides, you know, he's got he's got big dreams. He's a guy who's very ambitious, and that he feels that he can, you know, with hard work, he can he can make it. He can he could come up, and he talks to his friend Damon over the years about, you know, they both have dreams and goals, and how if they, you know. They both feel like real estate might be a way to do that because Damon's mom's a, a real estate agent. And at some point, he, you know, I think because of certain relationship factors not going as, you know, the way he wants, and then a, a few other things, he decides he's going out west. He's going to Colorado. Hell, they legalized weed. I'm going to Colorado. And he lives in Denver and works there briefly. And then for some reason, we can't, we've never figured out. He moves to Boise, Idaho. And he lives and works there. He's doing random construction jobs and stuff. He uh, he buys himself a used Lexus while he's living there. Uh, turns out it's very racist. And uh, he gets pulled over a lot and is, is dealing with a lot of those issues. And then at some point, he comes back to St. Louis. Uh, his brother had been... Uh, in a basically in like a carjacking situation he was worried about his family he comes back home and he goes all right um i get home i don't you know i don't have a place because i haven't been living here i'm gonna i'm gonna live in mom's basement real quick and i I really want to sink my teeth into starting a real estate business and that was pretty much where he was at he was talking to you know hanging out with his friends talking to a couple different girls that he had had sort of on and off relationships with and, you know, so it's a, a normal 24-year-old trying to figure out this life and what to do with it. And uh, then on the morning of October 17th, 2018, he's found hanging from a tree in the backyard of the family home. He's wearing like a sort of like a p- pajama style pant, like an elastic waistband pant that's over some like basketball shorts. Those pants are like rolled down and hanging at his ankles. And no one had any inkling in his inner circle and in his family that he was you know, depressed, anything was wrong. Like it seemed very out of the blue. And he's also a character uh, who is very, very defensive of his family, like very protective of his family. Um, His mom, uh, Melissa McKinney's, who's a long time now activist in St. Louis, Ferguson activist, very out front in that activism. He's very protective of her. She has lupus and he's always on her about making sure she gets to the doctor's appointment and stuff. And that's one of the main reasons she is so skeptical that he would ever have harmed himself, taken his own life, because he was so involved in taking care of her and also looking out for his siblings and the rest of his family. She's like, he wouldn't have just removed himself from that situation. He wouldn't have just left us all high and dry like that, especially in a way where he didn't communicate it somehow or in a way that we wouldn't have seen that something was wrong first. Yeah, and I mean, people forget. Well, I mean, so as of 2016, Twitter Twitter released like what were the top hashtags of all time and around like social issues, and Ferguson was number three, and uh, and number one was Black Lives Matter, and people kind of forget that it started it was Ferguson first, and then after the the what they call themselves the Ferguson Frontliners, which is essentially like the OG, we showed up the day Mike Brown was killed, and we didn't let it go, activists. Um, after them, then they made enough of a point and got enough of the national spotlight that there were a lot of other places, unfortunately, where similar things were happening and that they were saying, we got that over here too. And that's how it became this kind of national 
Black Lives Matter movement. And there is there are a lot of folks, uh, whether it's petty or whether it's rightful, uh, that, that kind of feel a little like they got left behind as these other people got sweet podcast deals or were able to kind of become semi household names in a, in a national movement. And, and they're left behind with still very little power and a lot of vulnerability in a place where they started a movement for police reform and are now stuck living with those police around them. And, uh, and that's sort of where we kind of come in with the Donye story, you know. Donye was also in the movement. He was out in the streets um, doing things like that, right? I mean, calling attention to police brutality. Yeah, he definitely participated. Like his, I think his participation from what we can see was not as, um, not as like gung ho as his mother's in the sense of like his mother was out all the time, right? His mother was like, <laughs> very 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 dedicated in doing this whereas he was like he was going out he was showing up at very on various nights at various protests 100 percent. he was definitely doing that stuff but like he was also a young man trying to live his life and you know figure out what he was going to do with it so he was not just like i am dedicated to this cause here and forevermore this is what i'm doing with myself but he did definitely go out participate uh, take part in those activities. And I think believe in that, in, in that movement, but like his mom was like more so the one who was like, I'm going to be there every single time I'm going to be, uh, organizing, getting people to show up, you know, I'm going to be, you know, get, you know, I don't think she consciously said to herself, I will become a leader, but like, that's where she ended up. And I think there's it, it was it, I don't think it's paranoid whatsoever. I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that the local police, as well as possibly, you know, uh, parts of federal government were, were keeping a close eye on key leadership in the burgeoning Black Lives Matter movement. They had come up with this new term for these poten for potential domestic terrorists. They call it black identity extremist. And that was sort of a convenient way to justify them trying to find assets, flip people on, you know, to, to feed them information on the inside or find other ways to kind of monitor and keep track of people like Melissa. Um, and they were presumably uh, identifying and probably tracking these, quote unquote, black identity extremists even before that sort of infamous uh, shooting incident in Chicago, I'm imagining, right? That Like that, because I, I, it seemed like that phrase sort of came into the media consciousness after that, you know, that, that sniper attack where I, I don't remember how many police were killed. Dallas, you mean? Yeah, sorry, Dallas, not Chicago. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, well, and also in Texas, I, I think maybe even in Dallas, there was a man named Raheem Balugan, I think his name was, and he was basically in his shower at his house uh, he's basically he I think he's the head of the Huey P. Newton gun club. So like a a, a gun club, uh, a, sort of a a I guess like a, a prepper style um, movement for black people. Basically, like we need to arm ourselves. We need to know how to, you know, handle weapons and we're, we need to train. And he his door gets kicked in by feds. They drag him out of the shower. They locked him up for I can't remember how many days, eventually let him out without charges. But that was another one of the times when that idea that black identity extremists hit, hit the media like why is this guy arrested why why are the feds you know grabbing this guy and like shuttling him off to parts unknown uh and it was like well yeah we're worried we're worried about you know black people who say they might need to be armed to defend themselves and just out of curiosity um 
did you find because since you guys left no stone unturned and this was such a thorough on the ground investigation um did you find a single person that you interviewed that actually knew donye personally who was like yeah yeah he was depressed um i could see him committing suicide did you meet anyone like that i mean in your entire attempts to, to figure out what happened here or putting it another way did you feel pretty much everyone agreed or gave off a vibe that they thought his death was actually suspicious and not a suicide such a complicated thing i, I could say that very honestly we came in very much expecting that it could it could turn out either way and the simplest answer did seem to be that if, if it was just simply that, that he was suicidal and that, you know, his family just refused to accept it. But that that got a lot foggier. I mean, over the course of the series and anyone who listens will will zig and zag quite a number of times, I think, as we did in terms of which direction they're, they're leaning, homicide or suicide. Um, but, yeah, the the number of people who were close to him that we would talk to who would kind of lean in and almost whisper like, look, I, I really think he had to have been murdered. The, the guy wasn't depressed. He never gave me a single sign, you know, that, and, and there were exceptions to that as people will hear in, in one of the later episodes, um, amongst a very close friend, but, uh, but by and large, there was that. And then there's also his cell phone. I, I like to say that like, so no one can lie when you have access to their cell phone. You know, our, our real selves are very much there in our cell phones. And, and so we got to dive into that. And, you know, again, we found something pretty startling that really was a gut punch moment in regard to that suicide versus homicide question. But um, but it was interesting to see how little evidence there seemed to be for depression. I mean, the police ended up putting like more or less deciding and the medical examiner ended up deciding that he was depressed based on. Apparently, some statements that, you know, uh, the investigators wrote down when speaking with his family that they felt were were mistaken or made up entirely. But um, he'd never been clinically diagnosed. And we we saw no evidence of him searching for like helpline, hotline, anything along those lines. We found very few people close to him who felt he'd ever been depressed or shown any signs of suicide. So the main evidence was. There was a chair over that this young man is hanging and there's a chair overturned underneath him. Um, And so if you're if you're a a local police investigator who maybe has a little bit of a chip on your shoulder about people like his mother, Melissa McKinney's protesting to see your job reformed for the previous four years. And now you have the job of making this determination. I mean, this particular detective had made up his mind by the time he left the house that day and told her it's going to be what it looks like a suicide. Yeah, we did. So there are people who knew Donye and then there are people who knew Donye. Right. And I would say that's probably true for all of us. We have people we encounter who are acquainted with, and then we have people who we like really let in. There were more people from the, that outer circle, that acquaintance area who were like, yeah, you know, he was kind of a quiet guy who, who were more like, yeah, I could see it. I could see maybe because, you know, he was always kind of quiet. Like, but then people who really knew him were like, no, nah, man, that guy was funny as shit. He was so silly and goofy all the time. It's like if you weren't around him, you know, if you didn't see him that way, it's just because he was just kind of keeping you at arm's length. And I think what people have to understand, if you don't come from that upbringing, there is a, a much thicker armor that people put on, right? Like there, it's a more violent 
city to live in there you know there's more there's more crime around you and like you have to be like in a sense like watching your six all the time so people aren't just letting in every stranger they meet and giving them their deepest you know feelings on a thing like you have a much tighter closer circle uh, in in a lot of regards we met i would say people who were in that circle probably one person who like and he didn't even strongly think like oh yeah Danye definitely killed himself it was more like i can see it like based on some conversations like He's like, I, I can see how that could be the reality. And then what was sort of unfortunate that we couldn't capture in the show due to various issues is the fact that after we talked to that person more extensively, after getting that assessment and going through some of that, some little minor details about this, that, and the other, that person actually started kind of questioning themselves on that assessment. They were like, huh, I didn't think about it that way. Like he had misread his own text message history with Danye. And once we could see Danye's text messages with him, we were like, hey, no, this, what about this? He's like, oh, he effectively thought what was like, turned out to be like Danye hitting him up to try to help another person get some weed was more of like a cry for help. Like he was trying to come over and hash it up that day. And like, it was like, no, man, look, he's getting, he's getting pinged by this other guy and he's trying to connect you two to help him get the, you know, so he's like, oh, damn it. Yeah. And like, so anyway, like there were, to bring it all back, there weren't too many people on that real close inner circle who believed he would have taken his own life. No, um, it, they were all very, very suspicious. And meanwhile, the number of things that maybe don't prove homicide, but are just really difficult to explain outside of that, um, those accumulated quite a bit uh, over the course of the investigation. And some of them, I still couldn't tell you what, you know, what the answer is, but. They, and there's, there's tough calls to make. I mean, there's tough stuff. Um, you, you know, people are going to say, well, look, there's no marks on his body. Like, how do you, how do you hang someone against their will and not kick their ass first? Or, you know, how are there not stab wounds or something that would show like this person was assaulted by a big group. And, uh, you know, we don't. We don't do a large amount of speculating in the show, and maybe that's a fault, but I would here say that there are, you know, we definitely came up with, in our own minds, ways that that could happen. Like, you know, whether that's just sneaking up behind someone with, like, a rear naked choke and making them pass out before you drag them over to that scene, or even just pointing a firearm at somebody and telling them, like, listen, you, if, you, if you make a sound, if you struggle... I'm not only going to kill you when your mother walks outside the house, I'm going to kill her too. You know, like there are yeah. theoretically ways in which that could happen where all of a sudden his protective nature gets turned sort of against himself. So, um, but there, uh, people will bring up those little things, you know, oh, well, you know, how, how'd that happen? It's like, well, there, there are possibilities. One thing I was curious about, and I didn't catch this in, in what I listened to. Was there anything interesting or noteworthy about the physical forensic evidence at the scene itself, like having to do with the bed sheets that was used or the chair that he supposedly stood on, anything like that. I know the medical examiner reports deemed it a suicide, but was there anything specifically sort of buried in that report or any of the, the fine details of it, which stood out to you guys? Like, you know, was it something as basic as death caused by asphyxiation from suicide or was it something a little more confusing than that? 
I think, um, well, there's a few things. I don't think anyone's ever explained the pants being rolled down around the ankles. I think that's that's a really different. I mean, it, it uh, that's one of the hallmarks of classic lynching. Go into that a little bit. What what does that mean? Right. Like, well, so, I mean, you know, the first thing that uh, his uncle and his stepfather did when they got out there, which some people think is a little unusual, but they thought the whole thing looked odd. And because they didn't trust police sort of as they were calling them, they're, they're taking uh, photos uh, of him there um, before 911 instructs them to take him you know, out of the loop of that bedsheet. So so luckily they did that and they were able to capture the fact that these, you know, it's just like anybody else's pants except literally seemingly rolled down, not necessarily pulled down, but almost rolled from the waist down to the ankles and sort of, you know, hanging there from his feet. And of course, you could you could kind of say, well, you know, maybe there's a way that could happen once you start hanging and flailing a little bit. I find it really hard to picture how those pants would have come down like that on on their own just from flailing legs. Um, And that, by the way, that's uh, see, every time we get to one of these, it ends up pointing some finger back at a failure of investigators. And, and that was one where in dissecting the police reports after the fact, we were able to see that from the, essentially from the day Danye was found until just before Melissa held her press conference to announce that she thought her son had been murdered about two weeks later, there wasn't a single investigative, um, there was nothing done by, by the lead detective whatsoever in that time period. And then when he seemingly gets word the day before her press conference that she's going to be raising a stink around the idea that it's not suicide, it's murder, he seems to kind of go, okay, fine, maybe we should, maybe we should test those pants and the bed sheet for additional DNA. And that's when the detective learns that the pants, because he didn't take it seriously for two weeks, have already been returned to the um, to the family and therefore are useful for DNA testing. So nothing further was able to happen on that one. And that's when he does go get the sheet tested. And what he learns is, yeah, there's one or more additional males who aren't Danye. So one would think at that point you go, oh, well, maybe I was maybe I was wrong. You know, uh, how about this? What if we just test the two males in the house who would have been in the vicinity of the sheet just to eliminate them or see if it's their DNA. Yeah. He never does another additional test on on the matter before he closes the case. He just sort of leaves it hanging there. There's so much there that could have been done. And it's just fascinating to see that you guys really spearheaded so much that the police just, just this gross incompetence and negligence um, like, for example, the phone. I mean, I watch enough forensic files. I know that you can, you know, you can easily acquire data from a phone if you feel like it needs to be investigated. It's not too hard to do. You guys had to hack it yourselves and, and you know, go through this data and actually try to match it with other texts and people who is corresponding with. But it's just it's just insane that the police from the get go, from the get go, just said everything that they looked at just said, okay, it proves suicide, but they can't release anything that proves suicide. They said that they never even contemplated anything other than suicide. And when you when you actually got the files and actually unearthed the kind of, you know, cursory investigation that the police did, it was just shockingly full of holes. I mean, it was like they just completely phoned it in. They barely did anything at all. And I feel like this is just how a lot of cases are, quote unquote, investigated, like especially by these notoriously corrupt police agencies. I would, you know, I would say you're probably right that this is actually just really par for the course. And I think that's probably what would 
disturb people the most is that it's just like another day on the job for them and they want it to be the easiest day possible. Like why overburden ourselves with work? Hey, it looks like a suicide. It's probably a suicide. Um, you know, and maybe someone would argue there aren't the resources to do a full forensics file, forensic files on every single potential suicide. But I think a few criteria could push us into, okay, at least on some of these cases, we absolutely should. And one of those criteria would be, it looks like a lynching, you know? And like, (laughs) you know, I think that's one of those criteria where you can go, you know, maybe our, maybe we are good cops. Maybe we've, we've seen a lot. We've seen, we see death every day, buddy. You don't know what it's like. And I've developed good gut instincts over the years. And maybe they have, I'll give them that. Maybe they do have good gut instincts, but maybe sometimes there are certain criteria where you go, you know what? Gut instincts aren't good enough this time. We got to do a real job on this one. And that criteria is it looks like a lynching, you know, and that's what this is. And even like full full honesty, Melissa thought it was suicide first eyes set on it because that's what a person thinks. You know, she is on the 911 call. You know, why would my baby do this? Right. And it takes your but she's in a state of complete and utter shock and terror. You know, so you get she needs time, a couple days to start decompressing. She's sitting around with the family. And that's, you know, the way she tells it to us, she's like, you know, she started thinking like, I don't think Danya, and once she started expressing to the family, like, I don't think Danya would have done this. That's when everyone come, kind of comes alive for her and goes, yeah, we don't either. And they're all like, we didn't want to say anything to you because we didn't want to like make this harder on you and freak you out. But now that you're expressing this, we all agree and we need to talk about this. And so that's why it took her you know, that week or so to start kind of getting the family together, going, you know, I think we should, I think we should go public. I think we should release, you know, it's day 11. It's after the funeral. It's like, all right, my baby's in the ground. Okay. That part's done. Now I can, you know, start talking about this as a potential homicide. And of course that gets used against her. You know, the, the pathologist, the medical examiner's office, you know, they're all like, oh, I guess she's changing her mind. It's like, what do you what do you expect out of a mother? You know, like that she's just immediately gonna put on her Sherlock Holmes hat when her kid's hanging from a tree. Like, like no, that was your job. And unfortunately, you know what we have. What I think, if I could have people take away one thing about how these investigations work, it's about how everybody creates this circle of of reasoning where they're all leaning on the person behind them but when you step back and you look it's a snake eating its own tail where it's like you know the the, the cops are like well the medical examiners they thought it was this and the medical examiners like well this is what the cops said you know and then even you know i don't want to get to some stuff that happens in the last episode but uh just to hint that feds do get involved at a certain point and it's sort of the same thing there's no no person stops and goes or you know no agency stops and goes like all right guys i i know that you thought maybe that and you thought maybe that but i'm gonna do my own hard look at this and 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 maybe maybe tease out some new details they're all just kind of like well if they thought that then that's probably good it's probably what it was and then each one just leans on the other and no one is doing the actual job of like trying to tear it apart and see if and the people before them were actually right. You know when else you might want to take like a closer look? Yeah, when it, when the crime scene looks like a lynching, that's a good time. Also, when you're still early in the investigation and the mother and, and the family members of this particular person hold a press conference to, to make the case <laughs> for why they believe it was murder, I would think at that point you give it a little more attention to homicide than you would if 
if you've told them you're going to declare it suicide and the family kind of goes, okay, you know. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like they were just totally annoyed um, at the fact that she had come out there with the Facebook post and made her own declaration about it. They just wanted to just push it under the rug and move on, you know, and it was just an annoyance. And that's, I think, another upsetting aspect of this is just, again, like the police attitude especially, I mean, especially the day of, and it, my blood is boiling even thinking about this. You know, it's, it's a lot. I mean, to find your son hanging from a tree and then a cop being there laughing, I cannot fathom that happening. And then of course they're retelling of how police, these ominous threats almost to certain individuals that were organizing and part of Black Lives Matter and just maybe speaking up about police brutality. And this is these are the kind of things that they were met with police saying, you better think twice. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but maybe you guys can articulate it better about like, you know, you better think twice about what you're doing or, um, you know, you you should think about what side you want to be on. I mean, I mean, I mean, imagine too, then that you find out that that um, that detective that you felt like wasn't necessarily on your side, and why was he acting like that? But you can't quite. Do I recognize that guy? I can't quite put my finger on it. And you realize, oh, about four years earlier, my son and I were at one of the most disturbing, you know, protests we ever went to, in which things uh, it became this melee with cops beating and macing protesters. My friend got his fingers twisted back and, you know, got injuries uh, while wearing a peacekeeper shirt right in front of me from this particular officer who then was heard on a body cam bragging about, you know, uh, getting a few good kicks in and unloading a whole can of mace. And uh, and that's the same guy. That's the guy who's investigating your son's murder. That's uh, That's a real small world. It's also real disturbing, I mean, that the police, they seem to want to have it sort of all ways. They really want to be respected. They want you to take their word for it. They don't want to be questioned. You know, they treat you like you're some wackadoodle just for suggesting maybe they were wrong in their assessment or something. But they also want to, so they want this respect, but they also want to be able to be on the streets. And like you're saying, Abby, be able to tell people like, you're playing a deadly game. You know, you better watch, you know, you better choose your battles and choose your enemies wisely. Like, what do the police think the reaction is going to be if they tell people on the street, like, you're playing a deadly game? It's like, okay, you're threatening me. You're threat- You're threatening to kill me effectively <laughs> for what I'm doing. And then later you want me to trust and respect you? Like, it doesn't work that way. You can't have both. You know, you can be this bullying, like you're saying, occupational force that comes in. You don't live in this part of town. You come in from 30 minutes away down the expressway from a lily white suburb to come in here and collect a check to like corral us like animals as effectively like, you know, a a person on the street told us, you know, that's how they felt. It's like you want to come in and treat us that way, threaten our lives. And then you're mad that we don't believe you or respect you. Like, that's ridiculous. And when we took that drive down that expressway to that lily white suburb to knock on that police detective's uh, door carrying notepads and explaining who we were and asking for him to, you know, essentially tell us about himself and the investigation and who he was and why he determined what he did. You know, we got a very angry response. And and then, you know, as the hopefully if your listeners listen to our podcast, will hear me on the phone with the information officer, Sergeant Benjamin Granda, who seemed to 
decide in that moment that there would be no cooperation whatsoever between the police and, and us. And I, I felt like it was they saw us as an extension of Melissa. They were rubbed the wrong way that she had the nerve to question the findings that they were about to announce to and that then we were going to like take that further by, you know, uh, investigating. It should just be what we said is is what happened and, and leave it alone. And um, yeah, there was an immediately antagonistic relationship. And I, I, I begged him. I tried to explain how this works. It's like you're going to call this a hit job at the end because you're going to feel one point of view was given and the other wasn't, but you're the one making it. So, because what we want is to bring to life the, the personalities of the people who investigated this, what they went through during the backlash to the police after Mike Brown, and then, and do the same for the activists and, and people can kind of empathize with, with the whole picture. And I, they did not find that to be a compelling argument because I think they probably prefer to just call something a hit job after the fact, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So we talked a little bit about, right, about the, um, the fact that uh, he was caught on a body cam, um, you know, uh, beating and macing black protesters. He, he was the result uh, he received, was the recipient of a, or the target of a civil suit. I mean, the really interesting thing is this wasn't just any black protester. I mean, not only was he wearing a peacekeeper t-shirt, but he successfully ran less than two years later for state house and became one of the first people of the Ferguson movement to become like an elected representative there in Missouri. Um, so, you know, you, you would think you would take his story in particular very seriously, and uh, but yeah, w w along the way, we actually uh, stumbled upon the social media account of this detective and his wife. And I'd say prior to that, we were willing to give more of a benefit of the doubt. Um, you know, there's got to be other explanations. This looks like racism or, you know, racial bias. Uh, but like, let's let's walk easy here. And then, you know, uh, without giving too much, I mean, one of the things we found on his Pinterest, and I don't know if any of your listeners use Pinterest. I don't. <laughs> uh, you know, I, it seems like a ridiculous thing to post racist memes on. <laughs> but, uh, but this particular detective had, had sort of posted in code the, the, you know, this, the, this soccer game where Nigeria is playing Germany. And so the first three letters of each country spells out a particularly offensive, you know, the N-word. Um, and, and wow. then, you know, and that's not the only thing. There was sort of less coded stuff in there as well. But it was kind of like, this is really ballsy. It's also, you know, it's, it, you know, maybe associating, maybe trying to gauge a person's thoughts and feelings based on their spouse can be unfair. Some might argue that. But his spouse, uh, so Detective Timothy Anderer, is married to a woman named Amy Anderer. And Amy Anderer, it, she trains people, cadets, at the police academy in St. Louis County. So she is a cop too. And she is a gatekeeper for who gets to be a cop in St. Louis County. And, you know, it's probably a bit of a spoiler alert, but, you know, first and foremost, we did find that she had a ton of memes online. And these are all the cop memes, like, you know, where like, you know, I, I hope you run. He likes fast food, hold, you know, the SWAT holding back the angry dog and stuff like, uh, you know, you, you said, fuck the police. So I say, you know, uh, I say, fuck your 911 call. I'll get to your dying homeboy when I finish my coffee. Uh, she has all, all this stuff up online. And we come to find out later through various sources that there are multiple complaints against her from black officers at the academy 
who basically claim and ultimately sue because she reserves the harshest treatment and the harshest language for black cadets. And it's like, now, is that Timothy Anderer, the one investigating the case? No, but it is his wife. And it's like, can we... We, we see that he posts, like, less but still some shitty things online. We see his behavior at the house. We find out how she's acting. And you start wondering, are these peas in a pod? You know, it, it's kind of hard to think you're going to have, you know, one real civil libertarian who, like, you know, is hanging the MLK poster in his room, married to the woman who's got, like, the Confederate flag <laughs> over the window or whatever. So um, it, it, we think it's kind of fair to look at her and say, you know, that probably speaks to him as well. Well, I think the meme says it all. I mean, there's really, you know, I mean, anyone who would post something like that, it's just like, you're a total piece of shit. Yeah, you don't you don't post something where it's blatantly the N-word for yucks unless, like, that somehow speaks to how you feel. But over the course of this story, there there are three police chiefs that, that, are, that are overseeing St. Louis County. And the first, you know, the first one's Tim Fitch, had given um, uh, the chief's commendation to to Officer Andrew after that that incident that we talked about in which he was caught on body cam, uh, you know, uh, macing and kicking black protesters. He was seemingly either offered the promotion to detective or he'd already been offered and they didn't change that as a result of understanding those actions. He was given uh, this was after the investigation of Danye and after we raised these issues was given another chief's commendation by the outgoing chief belmar and then you know in episode 11 you're gonna find out what happens the final episode of the, of the show um find out what happens with the third police chief mary barton who just resigned due to unspecified issues that i think are probably going to emerge actually we have a source that thinks possibly a contributing factor was this podcast but i i don't know wow I mean, hey, don't, I mean, it definitely could be. I mean, you guys are keeping the story alive in a really important way, adding pressure. A lot of people are going to be reinvigorated to look into this. Um, you know, it's this is just kind of a side note, but it is just an interesting kind of microcosm of so much that's wrong with the country in terms of your previous work uh, with kind of more deep state apparatus stuff and investigations into that. It is kind of similar. I mean, there's a boys in blue solidarity code where people are promoted, protected, that, you know, things like this just go by the wayside. I mean, they're they're covered up. Um, they're just shrouded in secrecy, you know, and there's so many hundreds, if not thousands of just cold cases that are just left. There's no answers to these endless questions that these families have. You know, I remember when Donye died and I remember hearing that there was this pattern that a lot of activists and people who were close to the movement in Ferguson were turning up dead. Um, I mean, did you ever follow those threads? Did you ever follow any leads into them? Or was it just, you know, was this just a totally isolated investigation? We did a bit. We didn't do nearly the work we did with, with uh, Donye's case. Um, but we, we looked at the ones that are like, I think the most commonly highlighted, uh, you know, we got the police report out of St. Louis city on Edward Crawford Jr.'s death. He's the guy throwing the, in the photograph, the famous photograph, mm -hmm. like throwing the tear gas canister. Um, he was, uh, 
shot, you know, shot in the head in the back of a car. Uh, but it turned out that car was actually moving at the time and his sister was driving it. And then one of their friends was in the passenger seat. Now, um, I, 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 so I hesitate to think that that was any sort of hit on him because his, you know, his, his sister's in the car. I doubt she would be involved in that, but, uh, it could have been an accidental shooting, could have been handling his firearm and accidentally done that, or it could have been intentional. Uh, his family, I think his release statements kind of suggesting both, but it doesn't seem like he was, you know, whacked from the outside. Uh, Basim Masri, who died a little after Danye, was a Palestinian-American activist who got really into the Black Lives Matter and the whole Ferguson movement. Uh, and he, his toxicology report showed fentanyl in his system. He died of heart failure on a bus. And uh, it he had been public about a struggle with heroin for a long time. But, you know, he's an interesting one, too, where we had a, a, somebody who works with Blue Leaks uh, very, like, late in the game send us some... Uh, like screenshots of messages he had he had attained from like local white supremacist groups in which they were talking about Bassem Masri around 2016 or 2017, like what his uh, daily routines were and how easy he would be to find. Um, you know, so you, you see things like that and your head goes, hmm. Yeah, it, it, you then you, you do kind of wonder. It's like, yeah, it, um, but we never, you know, were able to like hunt that trail. Uh, we got that, like Ray said, like pretty late in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh Darren Seals and DeAndre Joshua are two men who also were both found shot in the head in the back of cars. Both of those cars were set on fire, uh, one unsuccessfully, one successfully. And those were clearly murders, 100%. They were murdered. Uh, No one knows who. We do get sort of a tip or a clue from someone at the St. Louis County government uh, at the end. It seems to be about Darren Seals when she's talking, but she doesn't say um, but suggests that it had to do with activity in his life outside of that. And he was known to have been uh, in a gang previously in his life. So the suggestion is it had to do with that, that St. Louis County government has leads on who did that, but they don't have the evidence to try to charge them. Um, that little tidbit does get heard in the last episode of the show. Um, but it's, again, it's unclear, but it's definitely two. That one is, those two are definitely homicides. Uh, and I think those were the most prominent ones. Yeah, those are the ones that get Dante. spotlighted. But yeah. I mean, we, we've got a long list. We timelined out everything we could possibly find in terms of activists, um, you know, being targeted in some other way, seemingly, whether it's by, you know, local police or other things. And, and the list is very long, um, including uh, uh, Cori Bush, you know, who got elected to, to Congress last year, and and she had had uh, an incident in which it was a close call with her child. Um, it's way too common out there, you know. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where like people could always like hand wave them all away, but you do never know. There are there are those rumblings amongst various like white supremacist groups, and then you have you know we had several police officers being fired out of St. Louis City for their pro Confederacy beliefs. You know, like yeah, angry cops who. You know, hate this movement who feel they've lost their jobs over this who are pro-confederacy i mean that's it's scary knowing that that's out there it makes it it makes everything possible at least i mean like you guys have said this was it looked like a lynching you know and we're talking about a place in the country that is historically uh you know racist i mean this is this is a very visceral remnant of the jim crow apartheid that existed in this country for a very long time. And that does not go, that legacy is not erased after a mere couple decades. I mean, this is something that these people are, are living with, as we said. I mean, this is, this is essentially like a militarized occupation zone. 
and you know you're talking about all these people who have been uh, essentially swept up into this kind of retaliatory measures by the police for activism, for speaking out. One has to look no further than Ramsey Orta. I mean, the guy who just simply filmed Eric Garner's arrest. And I think he was, you know, sent to Rikers. He was like fed food with like rat poison in it. I mean, it's just it's just insane when you actually just pull back the curtain and, and look at just any one of these cases because it goes so far beyond people who who die even. I mean, people who are arrested, who are, you know, intimidated false arrests for completely unrelated crimes. I mean, this extends far beyond what is potentially retaliatory murders here. And imagine just for the sake of argument that you're a, you're a white supremacist with murderous intentions, with some kind of rage inside you, and you've decided that for the good of the country, as you see it, you're going uh, to make one of these prominent Black Lives Matter activists pay. And you know that essentially... You know, if you if you murder him in a, in a lynching style, but simply tip a chair over underneath that the local cops are not exactly going to walk over coals to try, you know, to try to get to the bottom of it. It's like, you know, under that environment, you don't have to be in cahoots with the police. You just need to kind of understand where their head's at. You know, there's also just sort of a banality to how government functions and how like in within that, like evil can flourish uh people will hear in episode three we speak with the uh chief medical examiner and there's this moment where she says this line and it's i don't think it hit me as hard it hits me harder every time i hear it where she says you know what you know what made this a suicide is there's a man hanging from a tree and she's like if there's a lethal instrument like a like a rope tied around somebody's neck like like, you know, you know, that's not going to change me from thinking it's a suicide. Like, it's just sort of like she's just stamping the papers, you know, like it's like, oh, comes across the desk, flips through it. Good. We got a suicide, you know, and I don't think that particular woman is heinous or in on it. But just her her basic statement that, you know, well, what makes it a suicide is there's a rope, like a guy hanging from a tree. It's like that's a weird, it's like, wait, but does it like like like, no, the, the rope around the neck could be a lethal instrument tied by somebody else. Like there's just like no, um, there's no imagination, you know? And like, and, uh, and not that you don't want everyone turning something into something it isn't, but you want there to be a level of like people, not just passing the folder from one person to the next person to the next person until it can land in a cabinet. You know, you want the people who are going over it to go, well, uh, hold on. I'm sending this back down real quick. Hey, Jim, did we ever look at those pants and then kind of scratching their head a little bit on these? And I think people may perceive that that's how it goes when 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 we have deaths. And I think, no, it's more, there's more just like a, we're clocking in at nine and we're clocking out at five. Mm. And don't, please don't make me stay any later than I have to. And that's just the attitude. Mm. But, you know, some of the most tantalizing stuff about this, you know, to me, there's, there's the, so, you know, his family last saw him leave the house with an overnight bag after seemingly very much enjoying watching, you know, uh, his beloved Celtics play, watch that game with his stepfather, heads out with an overnight bag. Not something he commonly did. They assumed he was going to see a girl, probably one of two women in his life. Um, his car wasn't running, so someone would have had to have picked him up or he would have had to have been able to walk to whoever he met. 
Uh, the police, at least locally, the medical examiner doesn't really believe that there's an accurate way to, to figure out time of death. So they overlooked that entirely. John was able to talk with somebody who, uh, you know, ha has been making waves for ha uh, having uh, created a, a somewhat novel method to, to find time of death. And that person had calculated 4.30 a.m. to be his rough time of death. So you have this seven hour missing evening where even if it was a suicide, the guy seemingly, you know, leaves the house like, you know, whistling a tune, looking forward to maybe an overnight with the lady. And somehow something sends him to that by 430, you know, the, the next morning. Um, there's also just the you asked about on the scene, Robbie. I mean, the family has claimed from the beginning and the, and the entire family is resolute that that was not the, a bedsheet from their house. So if he made mm -hmm. the decision to hang himself, he had to go, he had to bring back a bedsheet from elsewhere, despite the fact that there's other items like rope and, you know, bungee cords and things in his garage that he could have, you know, accessed that would have been much simpler. And then there's the matter of the knot, which was, you know, you got a Navy knot, uh, a figure eight knot. Um, you know, his stepfather was, was a military man and recognized how, like, what a difficult and, and knew for a fact that Danye should not have known how to make such a knot. So, I mean, there's these indications, you know, of like what's going on here um, that we found tantalizing. And there was a complicated knot. And, and as you said uh, in the podcast series, that there was also like a noose hung at like a local park or something, right? Like a very clear kind of ominous. Oh, you're, so setup, back right? in episode one. Yeah. So when the that noose was uh, during the protests. So there's this group called Lost Voices, and they are one of the most like radical protest groups, right? They're out every night, they're camping out, they're trying to, you know, block streets. Uh, and this is the group that Melissa joins. And uh, at their campsite, like, which is in just like a, a parking lot where they have all these tents and stuff, they wake up in the morning and there's a noose there. And like the, the young man who finds it, who's kind of talking to someone recording with a, a phone, says, you know, the only people driving up and down here are cops, you know, and... You know, who knows what that means, but it, it's very clearly a noose that's been left for them to find at their camp. And, you know, th there's definitely a difference between leaving someone a noose and having the full intent to, like, sneak out and murder somebody. But it does show that they're surrounded by this hostility and this attitude, you know, that this is floating. So, yeah, cops threatening our lives, saying we're playing a deadly game. Now we're finding nooses. And in the weeks, you know, the months and then weeks leading up to Danye's death, Melissa's got these weird cars parking in front of her house, you know. And she claims on one occasion, at least, when there's two cars that are like suburbans with tinted windows that like officers in clothes that sit like shirts that say police get out, congregate in front of her house and then go back to their cars. So, like, you know, she's wondering, like, what the hell is this about? This, you know, in, in all of these things could be, you know, static, you know, they could be have, have nothing to do with it. It could be something else. But it really makes you start questioning it and, and it's it, how could at least she and her family not believe that these events are connected i guess uh let me just ask you guys outright i mean and if you don't want to answer that's that's totally fine too but just wanted to hear from each one of you guys just your own personal gut feeling conclusions i know you said at the beginning of this you you guys had some of your own speculative theories about how this could have been a murder but I guess just just tell me outright, do you, sitting here right now, do you believe, either one of you, this was a suicide or a murder? 
and give me a little bit of your own reasoning as to why you think either outcome is is likely. Um. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's it's so weird too. Like, you don't want to talk about spoilers. Uh. Like, I, I mean, I, I hate using the term spoiler in terms of such a serious and important with both national and St. Louis relevance, this young man's life, what happened to him. It feels a little flip to say spoiler, but as you know, to sometimes to get people to, to dive into subjects like this that they wouldn't necessarily be interested in, it's important to create engaging storytelling. And so we tried to do that and we tried to create a show that would send, that, that would allow people to experience what we did, which was going back and forth as we found a new startling piece of evidence that makes it clear it has to be, suicide and then we find another piece that's like well hold on a second actually maybe that actually points to homicide and there in particular there's something around a missing ipad and the potential of someone being that's not Danye accessing Danye's accounts that really requires someone with subpoena power to get any further with it and the audience that follows this journey will see that we 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 end up bringing this to someone with subpoena power who should have the responsibility uh, to, to to look further at this I'm, I'm hesitant to answer the question. It's my I just filibustered you there, Robbie. <laughs> well, that's totally fine. I gave you the option to filibuster. I mean, I, this question gets asked, you know, in any interview, and it's an understandable question. And, and like I said, we do want people to dive into the whole thing. Um, so we don't want to just like say like, oh, it was this? And then people just don't listen to the whole show. Yeah, right. So we, we do want that to be there. Um, but I will say we find stuff that basically that demonstrates that if it was murder it was sophisticated right that if it was murder it wasn't just some hillbillies who were drinking beer and 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 you know booze cruising and saw a young black man walking home and decided on the spot like let's fuck with this guy like if it was murder it was well planned uh and if it was murder there seems to be a lead that could potentially lead back to who did it. If only there was a willingness amongst uh, either the county government or even the, the feds and that were, you know, I, I think when this, by the time this show airs, the last episode will drop. So people can have heard this. Like we hope there is a push to get either the St. Louis County government, the Missouri state government or the U S federal government to, to take that step. To, to go into this digital thing that if someone just, it should not even be hard for them. You know, like they should be able to figure out within like, you know, a few hours worth of work definitively what happened. And uh, unfortunately, yeah, we weren't like, weren't able to make that happen ourselves. Yeah. The St. Louis FBI. Yeah. Uh, well, you, you've done all the work. <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's like we, we, we can run the ball 90 yards, but it really takes somebody <laughs> with like, you know, who's got legal powers, we just don't have to do that last bit, you know. And the frustrating thing is you, you try to put all this out there thinking, all right, now it can't be ignored. And our, our strategy was get the local press to cover it. It shouldn't be a problem at all. The, each episode includes certain revelations that would, you know, that, that, that the public would be interested in out there. And, uh, and then when the St. Louis press says this is a big deal, this is enough of a, of a national issue that, that a few of the, the big national guys are no doubt going to pick up on this as well. And although we are a minor hit for this type of podcast for, for iHeart or right on the cusp, it's been resolutely ignored by, local, by the local press. And it's been extremely frustrating with the exception of uh, the local NPR 
And I'll, I'll say this, it's like, it's terrifying. Like to think like, if he was murdered, what that means, like looking back at everything we found, it then creates a terrifying situation. <laughs> like the fact that a, this was allowed to happen and, and th these people were allowed to get away with it, but like the method by which it was done and like the moves that they made to accomplish this are terrifying. And it, and it, and it means some very quick action has to be taken to stamp this out. And I think it would, um, I, I think it would, you know, really move just the public in this country to go, holy fuck, like someone was that intent to go through what they went through to to create this lynching and to then get away with it. Um, I think it would be, it would send shockwaves through not just St. Louis, but through through the country. And I think that right there is why the FBI with their endless resources should just take the three hours it would take to open up what we want them to open up and to, and to parse through it and pin it down. Yeah, I mean, you guys have definitely done the legwork for them. It shouldn't be too hard to just follow up on on the leads that you guys have acquired here after two and a half years of on-the-ground investigations. Um, let's close this out by just talking about what's next. I mean, I guess you guys just kind of articulated that, that there is potential for leads, but you don't have the capacity to pursue that on your own. And we can only hope that the pressure is accumulated and mounted through the awareness of this case through this podcast for the interest to, to peak again. I mean, local media, that's really sad to hear, but I guess not too surprising. So anyone who lives in the area, please, you know, just write letters to the editor, call your local media stations and just generate the interest about this story and spread the word about After the Uprising, an incredible 11-part podcast series. Ray and John, let's close this out by just talking about what you hope to see happen next and how people can check out the series. On September 11th, uh, now this, who are our partners on this, they're gonna uh, they're gonna live stream and promote a, a private event we're gonna have with Danye's family, with um, uh, the Black Police Union has uh, has heard the the podcast and has has committed to be part of this as well. Tef Poe should be there. Former State Senator Maria Chappelle Nadal has has been kind enough to host. It'll be at the Ferguson Urban League, who's been nice enough after hearing the podcast to allow you know gratis their space um so that's a chance where we we were yes we were very very sympathetic to melissa um yes we maybe now consider her a friend but we we, we made a point all along of saying we were independent journalists who looked at everything and reported we reported everything that we found in an honest way to the public without letting that friendship sway us but and therefore, Melissa didn't really get to tell her own story exactly, and the family didn't get to tell theirs. So we see this event as an opportunity for them to go, okay, these guys had their 11 episodes, now we're going to react and we're going to talk about next steps for what we want to see for Justice for Donye. And, and I know Senator Maria Chappelle-Nadal also sees a lot of evidence regarding systemic racism captured in this, regarding St. Louis County, um, about the next steps in trying to reform including potentially maybe with that lead detective we've been talking about. So I'm hopeful that. <laughs> yeah, that, that police union is, by the way, it is the black police union. They have two police unions, uh, like several cities in the U.S. do, as, like, we're not really into police unions in general, I don't think either of us, but, like, the fact that they that the black cops are like, oh, well, certainly we're not welcome over there, so I guess we have to have our own, is, like, 
it should boggle minds on its own. But yeah. um, people can listen to the show. It's on you know all the regular podcast apps, so Apple, Spotify, the you know iHeartRadio app. Uh, again, it's called After the Uprising, and then the subtitle is The Death of Donye Deon Jones. We do have a Facebook page that people can connect on if they just it's what after the uprising on Facebook. And John apparently had some spare time, so he he went and created a, a brilliant three part uh, podcast looking into the origins of uh, of COVID. Also, partially because we feel uh, that it's it's kind of important to check check all sides of the political spectrum occasionally, right? And uh, and just simply be independent seekers of truth. Um, and so that's called a. Origins, birth of a pandemic. He did a great job on it. I hear a couple more episodes are coming. Yeah, making uh, like two more episodes or three. I don't know. I've got a bunch of interviews in the can to use. And then we're also working on a uh, uh, on something that's a about a, a missing native woman out in Montana that uh, she ended up a young a young lady actually. She was actually sixteen. She wasn't a woman, um, but she ended up dead not far from where she went missing. And it seems like. The, cor- the corruption level in St. Louis County is almost quaint uh, when when <laughs> wow. we start talking about what's going on out there. So uh, so right. that'll be a future thing that people can look forward to. Well, everyone should definitely follow your guys' work. I mean, it, it's really next level stuff. Watchdogs didn't bark. Who is Rich Blee? Everyone check it out because everything you guys have done has been really ace and uh, really inspiring to, I know, my brother and I just as... Uh, filmmakers and podcasters and, and everything else. So keep up the great work. Thanks so much for your time and for coming on Media Roots Radio. Thanks for having us. I'd actually say uh, the, your work is also inspiring too. And like the the one I just did on Lab Leak, honestly, Robbie, your Anthrax uh, Attacks podcast, I think was like my motivation. <laughs> I was like, you know, I, like I really oh, like wow. that Anthrax <laughs> one he did. And like, I think I could pull that off. And so... <laughs> That's Love that's so awesome that to hear. I mean, because the the Anthrax podcast I think you're talking about was was quite inspired by who is Rich Billy. So that's a nice uh, feedback loop. I always like hearing stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, when you go on Joe Rogan, I feel like I went on Joe Rogan. So very, very proud of your guys' work. <laughs> Thanks so much, y'all. Yeah, thank you, guys. The track you're hearing is an H.O.M. remix of a Noma Ogo track called Silver Ships. The artist that went by the name H.O.M. very sadly passed away on August 17th, 2021. Ashley performed under the name H.O.M. and also the duo The Source of Faunation. I'll be giving a proper tribute to Ashley on the next episode of Media Roots Radio with Abby and I. Rest in peace, Ashley. Ashley.